is time for the NFL preseason edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. I am David Campbell, your host, and I am joined, as I am every week, by Mr. Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist for the Plain Dealer in Cleveland.com. Uh, Terry, I, I I know we're going to get into the Browns. I want to get your predictions on the season, but why don't we start with the Guardians, since there's a lot of drama going on there. Yeah, I watched um, I watched Giolito pitch, and after he left the game and Fry came in, I wrote my Jimmy Buffett column. That's right. So, yeah, it was twenty to six. It would have been twenty to nine, right, if Cade York hadn't missed that wide yeah, right at the I'm end. Jeez, so. I mean, just <laughs> sorry. Yes. But um, you wrote a column today about Giolito, and yeah. you watched him, and there were not normal things happening, like you would see in a major league games in terms of the way he was pitching and the way the ball was coming off the bat. Why don't you start? It was with that not... and tell us about that. Right. I mean, here's a guy. Well, in the first inning. Uh, the first five guys, the exit velocity, I'm not big on exit velocity, but I'm just watching. I just kept writing down line drive, line drive, line drive, you know, next to that. And, you know, there are guys almost running into walls to make catches. So I did go on the baseball savant to see the exit velocities, and they were all like 103 or 95, somewhere in there, which means that ball's been flattened. It's just been crushed. Yeah, do you want him? It was it was 101, 100, 101, 98, and 95. Yeah, so that was it. And, I mean, even the ground ball single, I think, was 95 or something. So um, then the next game, next inning, he only gave up a run there. He strikes out the first two. He's on 0-2 on the next batter. Starts sort of going for the corners, ends up walking the guy. And then, as Tito said, well, it unraveled. No kidding. I mean, he just got blasted after that, gave up uh, six runs in that inning, a grand slam. And next inning, he gave up a couple more runs. Um, so now you could say, all right, whatever, first game of Cleveland, really bad game, whatever. But from when he was traded by the White Sox to the Angels at the end of July, since then he has made uh, seven starts. He's one in six with an 8.50 ERA, so seven starts, one in six with an 8.50, and this is like Noah Syndergaard even worse. 13 homers and 35 and two-thirds innings. There's and and now, if he'd been having a bad year up until then, I would say okay, just a continuation. But from the opening day till the end of July, he was six and six with a 3.89. You know, solid starter. So there's something going on. He's either hurt or his velocity was around 93. That's what he's been throwing. He used to throw 97 or more. Uh, But sometimes, like Cal Quantrill, when he was hurting earlier in the year, uh, his velocity did not go down much, but his control was not good. I mean, he was over the middle of the plate a lot. So that's a possibility. The other possibility is, and this is something Ellis Burks mentioned to me. He does the he was doing the, the Guardians uh, postgame, former player. And he said, man, they're swinging at that like they know what's coming. And so we kind of debated, did they, are, is this guy tipping his pitches? We didn't come to any conclusion. But it wasn't normal. So when you talk about tipping pitches, Terry, it could be anything from the way that he's holding the ball, the way he's stepping when he's pitching, yep. uh, the uh, angle of the arm. Like there's a lot of things in there that we don't really know the answer to. But I, I think you're on to something. It's it's such a dramatic change from what he had done. And it's very sudden. Yes. And so he's either he's either hurt 
And that's a possibility. With it seems like all these guys get hurt, or they're they're just ripping that fastball. Now he said that his changeup, he called it spiking, which means it bounces in front of the plate. Uh, and he's primarily a fastball changeup pitcher with a little bit of a breaking ball. So maybe they just totally laying off the um, changeup and just waiting on the fastball. And maybe that's why it looks like they're uh, reading the pitches. But regardless, those are alarming stats. And you're trying. I mean, it was just terrible. That's like you go out in the first quarter of a big game, you throw three interceptions. I mean, it's just terrible. I mean, the the fans there, there weren't a ton of them, but they were excited for this the series. And just just nothing. Then you have four, four innings of David Fry and, and I understand why Tito did it. You know, you're trying to save. Uh, after what Giolito did, you're like, okay, I'm just going to try to see if I can have my pitchers all lined up for the next two games. Yeah, you know it's bad when I don't know, Terry. Do you ever if you've ever gone to a ballpark and done the the pitching cage where your fans can yeah. go and throw and like I can hit like fifty five, fifty six miles an hour yeah. on a good day, and that's what David Fry was throwing last night in it the four actually, innings that he you worked. Know, you the know, the interesting thing about that, David, it actually shows the point that even if you lob the ball sort of down the middle, even big league hitters don't hit every pitch out of the park. <laughs> They still pop a few up, or they still ground some. Uh, you know, sort of the benefit of throwing strikes. I'm not suggesting everybody begin throwing 56 miles an hour, but there is a a reward for getting the ball in the zone. So, but the, the, meanwhile, the other two guys that pitched the other day, um, Renardo, uh, what's his name, Lopez, and um, Matt Moore. I love, I love Matt Moore early in his career with, with Tampa Bay before he got hurt, and he's remade himself nicely into a. a a reliever. I mean, they both look good, and I know he didn't want to waste those guys in that game. He said with uh, Lopez, he throws 97-98. Uh, he's not a guy that you pitch like five times a week. You've got to kind of space him out a little bit. So that's something for fans to keep in mind. So we'll see if they do the next couple games, but that was a bummer. So the Guardians are 66-72. and 72. They're six games behind the Twins. They really needed that first game last yeah. night, Terry. But they, if they don't win the last two of this series – it's it, you know we we proclaimed this thing over a couple of weeks ago, but they have any chance at all going in the last few weeks, or they have to win these next two. If it comes to it, would you put Giolito back out there again, or or can you risk that if they happen to win these next two, keep it within four going into the weekend? Would you put him back out there again, or is it is that a bad idea? I think it's a bad idea. If it again, if this game was isolated or something, so what? I mean, it's a terrible time to have a bad game, but. And just the numbers are what they are. And I remember when I asked Francona when they traded for him, because I was looking at those numbers with the Angels, and he said, well, there's really only two very, very bad games in there. And this, and mentioning that he had been a good starter for most of the season and, you know, for most of his career. But that was that was alarming. And so if you want to get back in a race, I mean, I'm not sure what you do with the guy, but I mean, like you claimed him, you paying him, you know, it's not like you've got to make this pay off. It's not like it's a big investment. If he doesn't look good, I I would really have somebody look at his arm. I would. 
Yeah, and I bet that's what they were doing first thing today is trying to get to the bottom of it. So, yeah. so Terry, I need to ask. So if you're on this team, if you're one of the players, you know, you're a Josh Naylor or someone who's been along for the whole ride. I remember when Chris Antonetti and Mike Chernoff went to Houston, right, mm-hmm. to meet with the team after all the moves were made to kind of explain what was going on. Do, do you think that I was I kept thinking about like what it would have been like last night to have a Savali on the mound, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and give yourself a chance. Do you think that, that Chris Antonetti and Mike Chernoff kind of gave up on this year's team with the moves that they made in the interest of longer-term stewardship, or were they trying to do both at once? I mean, do you think it was fair to the players, I guess, is my question. What went down? Or are they going to look back and wish, boy, I wish we'd given these guys more ammunition going into the final stretch here? Well, uh, I'll just put it this way. It's kind of like when the Guardians several years ago, now it's an off-season trade, made that four-way deal, and the Yandy Diaz was shipped to Tampa Bay. And people, I say they got Jake Bowers. Yeah, they but they also got Carl. They also got Carlos Santana. That was a win-now move. The players all love that move because it brought in Santana. And it turned out Santana had only one good year left. And then by 2020, he was done. He's still playing, but he's just not the same guy. And Yandy, who we all knew was going to be a pretty good hitter. I'm not sure we all thought he was going to win a batting time, but you could tell this guy always hit. Uh, is still playing. So there's there's always the the flip side of when you do when you make a move like that, you know, which way you want to go. Um, they, I mean, in the end, it's going to come down to Manzardo, how he's playing. He's, I last time look, he's at like 295 at uh, Columbus. He's off to a pretty good start there. Um, one of the things I didn't like about the trade is that he was the only thing he got back. You know, I would have tried to get some kids in low A ball or something just to flesh the deal out a little bit. But they have to be right. And um, Savali had a really good game, I think it was yesterday uh, or two days ago. He struck out 10. He's been sort of up and down, but it's certainly better than what we watched with Giolito. Um you turn around, okay, so you trade Ahmed Rosario, who's last I saw, I was only hitting about 220 with the Dodgers. We could look that up. Now, since taking over, you and I were just looking at this um, before we went on. Taking over at short in the last 30 days, um, Arias is sitting 256, 750 OPS, four home runs. Um I really think he's going to be a guy who's going to hit 25 homers, he's going to strike out 140 times and play great defense at short. Uh, they're probably getting more out of him there than they would have out of Rosario. I, I really believe that between the defense and the offense, and when you flip it, you're not comparing to Rosario a year ago, you're comparing him to how Rosario is playing now. Right. So that was one of those moves there. Then the other is the Josh Bell to bring up SpongeBob, who just failed dismally. So that that was awful. Uh, you know, now they've got you got Naylor back. I I just think losing Naylor was really changed the dynamic of the team and the lineup. Yeah, and the record proves it. What, are they, what I think they they won six games right since he yeah, when he was out like uh, that. for 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 a month practically. So that's. Uh... That's and rough. Then, and then Jose really struggled too. You can see Jose was really struggling. Um, so I, I just maybe I just didn't have a lot of confidence in this team. The schedule is very hard. If you look every time they're turning around, they're playing a winning team now. Um, so maybe they did, but 
I can't, if Manzar, especially if Manzardo ends up being a pretty good player. Uh, I don't. I've got some fa- some fans wrote me. Well, he's a first baseman in this. I don't care what he is. I want a hitter. You find a play. You got a DH. You got a first base. You could do something. Josh will tell you he can still go play the outfield. I'm not sure I want to see that, but he can go stand out there if need be. And um, so it it really it really depends on that. And I mean, uh, you know, the, the Bell thing just. It just shows you how baseball drives you nuts. Guy goes 600 at bats between two teams, the best 219 with 16 homers or something. Gets off the plane, plane in Miami, and suddenly remembers how he hit a couple of years ago when he hit 27 homers. So that's baseball for you. So, yeah. so Terry, the, you mentioned uh, Gabriel Arias, and part of what the idea was making these trades was to let the young guys play, see what mm-hmm. they have. Bo Naylor is one of those guys, and I'm curious about what your impressions are of him so far. And are they is he giving them more or less about what you thought he would give the Guardians? Especially given how he's played lately, um, and um, you know he, he's hitting 250, 876 OPS in the last 30 days, three homers. Uh, he's coming around, and is I mean. You could see it. He's talented. I mean, the other day he scored from third base on a short fly ball. And Frank Cona said, how many catchers can do that? And defensively, he's not bad and getting better. Uh, and I, you know, it isn't just simply because he's Josh's brother. But I think if you look at the way Josh improved over time, my guess is Bo will probably do the same. Um, he's a good athlete. And I just, I like them. I'm glad they're playing them. I mean, the Mike Zanino, all that junk, you know, that just that just doesn't didn't fly very well. Well, and it makes me think of Miles Straw a little bit. Like, if yeah. you're looking forward, you can you know you can play Bo Naylor back there five or six days next year and sure. you feel okay about it. Like, you've seen the proof. And the fundamentals are coming along, and, and the defense seems like it's coming along, and it, I think it's going to be okay. Yeah, and I think they feel the same way. Yeah, you're not going out. I mean, well, there's a ball went off his glove the other day, but it's nothing like before when every ball in the dirt was an adventure. And nobody seems to be throwing out many base runners in modern baseball. But Zanino, it was absolutely hopeless. At least Mayor can get the ball to second base. And to prove how bad Zanino was, uh, I mean, oftentimes even as bad as he was, a catcher, a veteran catcher like that gets picked up, he did not. That's that's about it. So, all right, yeah. Terry. We uh, we have a few hey Terry questions. What about the Guardians? Why do we get into those? Um, okay. This one is from Ron and Stowe, and he says, "Hey Terry, what are your thoughts on the short and long term plans for Miles Straw in center field for the Guardians? He's a great defensive talent, but as we all know, his offense is not what we'd like it to be. Do the Guardians keep him for 2024, or do they move him along and look for a suitable replacement in the outfield? Do they move Quan to center field and find a replacement in left field in 2024? Thanks for your great insights, and I appreciate you and David." and your podcast and the great content. Thanks for that, Ron. Appreciate that. So what do you think of Miles Straw, Terry, next season? I'm really disappointed because I thought this guy would hit better. Um, And I'm basing it on the fact that he was nearly a 300 hitter in the minors. And you remember the first year when he came to Cleveland, I think he hit about 275. There's not a lot of power behind it, but you look at that, get on base, steal some bases and play great center field. But the last two years, I mean, he's actually hitting better this year than last year, but there's still not much there. Um, 
I'm sure one of the things that they scenarios they have is like let's move Quan to center, and Quan is having a really nice second season. He is, you know, he's not hitting close to 300 like before, but his on base percentage is good. And the last I saw, he's like a 275. He plays every single day, and his defense is excellent. Uh, at the top of the order, he works the count. Uh, he isn't like mismatched against lefties versus righties. That's not a big factor. And he certainly could play center. He played center at, at Oregon State. Uh, so if they want, if they could get a bat to play a corner outfield position, sure, I would be open to that. Miles could either be a backup or he could maybe move him, even though he's got the long-term contract. By baseball standards, it's pretty cheap. It's well below the average salary. Yeah, and the thing, like, the thing that is really interesting, if you watch Stephen Kwan at bat or even in a game, he's always adjusting. Like yep. he's shortening up. He's trying to work the count. He knows if he gets in a hole 0 and one, he's got to change his approach. And and he had a big hit the other night uh, doing that exact thing. And I, I just, I'm not a hitting coach, but if I watch Miles Straw, like I don't see that same process. No. Do you? No. I, 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 right? I mean, he takes fastballs like right down the middle early in the count. I mean, sometimes the best pitch you see is going to be the first or second one. And it is annoying when you're a hitter. And, you know, even a little bit that I played in high school and college, uh, you know, you go up there and you're not a particularly good hitter to begin with. And then, which was my case, and when you do it miles in context of the big leagues, it's that. And then here comes that first pitch and you pop it up. You go, oh, man, you know, I just should have taken a couple of pitches. But it usually is the best pitch you're going to see. The other day when they won that game, remember Jose Tanya came up. The first thing he saw is swung at. Meanwhile, watch Cole Calhoun. This was like they had runners on third or something. And Loriano, two veterans come up. They both take fastballs down the middle. Then they swing at breaking balls in the dirt. Now it's 0-2. They're done. They're done. And the best pitch they probably were going to see, because the pitcher's out there, I'm going to get out ahead of them, and then I'm just going to break and ball them to death. So that's um, I I've seen Quan. He does like to take the first pitch, but I've seen him swing earlier in the count. He's done that more often actually this year. And Miles, I'm not sure what he's doing up there. Sometimes he's t- it's like he's trying to get a walk or something. Yeah, and just behind the stats here, uh, Stephen Quan batting 271. Um, he's got a 375 slugging percentage. And Miles Straw, 237 with a 298 slugging percentage yeah, and, what, and the OPS, 301 on base. What's, what's yeah. the OPS for both? Yes, yeah. Uh, it's 337 and 375 for Stephen Kwan. Yeah, that's what I thought. He's over 700. So he's, he's 712. Yeah. All right. And right. Miles Straw is 301 and 298. If you're over 700, like a guy like Kwan, that's very good. And so with the 375 you know so he's he's played well miles are just not much behind it so uh we'll see what they come up with for an outfielder or what they're what they're going to do um but i have to admit i mean we have to we have to own it as they say uh i know a guy that ran a hedge fund and when you recommended a bad stock like for a day or two you had to wear the name of the stock and a sticker on your forehead you know, Procter and Gamble or whatever it was. Well, I got to wear SpongeBob for a day or two after uh, <laughs> pushing for him because he, David, it does show you um, how confidence can just destroy a player because he could not have been hitting what he was hitting in AAA, which is very good, uh, swinging like he is right now. 
And here's a prediction, Terry. Next spring training, we are going to be reading features about Oscar Gonzalez and his rebuilt, revamped swing because yep. they're just going to have to tear it down and start over. So, um, okay, we got another question here. This one is from Dan Monahan. He's from Erie, Pennsylvania. He says, hi, guys. I look forward to your podcast every week. Terry, I grew up reading Hal Lubavitz, and mm-hmm. I put you right up there with him and Chuck Heaton as the all-time best Cleveland sports writers of all time. Here, here. Great, great point. And I agree. I, by the way, high praise, too, for um, both of those guys. And also uh, men of integrity uh, that I appreciate. That one, in fact, I've won a ton of awards, but the, the one that I'm uh, proud, maybe about as proud of any is I won the first Chuck Heaton Award because it was had to do it was tied into ability, character, longevity, and that. So it always meant it meant a lot to me. So I appreciate those kind of words. I really do. Yeah, and that's the Cleveland Press Club that awards that Chuck Heaton Award, and it's very yep. prestigious. So yeah, congratulations on that, Terry. Yeah, well deserved. But um, Dan continues. He says when Josh Bell was traded to the Marlins and immediately started hitting, <laughs> someone, not you guys, said he wasn't surprised because he believed Bell was quote, a National League hitter all along. Is there such a thing as a National League hitter? And if so, what constitutes a National League versus an American League hitter? So I've been thinking about this, Terry. I don't have an answer for this these days because everything has changed, right? Like back in the 70s and 80s, there might have been a thing like that. But I don't know anymore. What do you think? I think he hit 198 with San Diego for the last two months of 2022. <laughs> so, I, uh, Your Honor, I simply submit that as my piece of evidence. And uh, he just got off the plane and started hitting. That's it. <laughs> that is simply it. And it's going to die down. But in the meantime, he had, like 11, he had like 11 homers here and I don't know, like 300 at-bats. And, of course, he had eight homers and like his first 100 at-bats down there. Um it used to be, I remember a long time ago when Jeff Kent came over from the, I want to say the, the Mets. They picked him up for the Mets, the the, the Indians did back then. It was a trade, and um, in fact, he was in a trade, I believe, for Carlos Baerga, and there was somebody else in it. He comes over here, and he is not hitting well at all. And he goes, I hate these American League pitchers. They have no guts. By the way, there's a lot of profanity and things in there. I'm, I'm cleaning it up. They won't throw you a fastball. They don't. They're not like men. The National League men are pitching in the National League, and that was, you know, back in the uh, '90s. That was sort of the thing before that. They threw more fastballs in the American League, and there were more break ball, breaking balls thrown in. The, um, yeah, excuse me, more fastballs in the National League, more breaking balls in off-speed in the American League. Be interesting to see now with analytics, they could go back and see if that's true. Um, but I don't, and also just the way now the uh, you're playing every team, every team at least yeah. once. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I with the it. DH going away, like I mean, back in the day, like the National League used to play a lot more small ball, where they'd sacrifice yeah. guys over more and try to manufacture runs. And even the umpires, there were NL umpires and AL umpires. And now, like you said, Terry, the schedule's more balanced. You see all the teams. There's crossing over. The the umpires all work for MLB. It's it's just um, I I don't know what that would be but uh, that's no. interesting about the pitching that there was a different approach in the different leagues at least that was the thought back then yeah. i'm not sure it was yeah. correct but of course i never saw the national league because i was covering the american league you didn't see them um, yeah. but i will say josh bill at 192 or whatever it was with san diego for the last two months of the uh, uh 2022 season so 
All right. And here's the last one. Uh, thanks for that last one, Dan. We pre appreciate yeah. that. Um, and before I forget, if you want to send us a comment, question, or anything else about the show, you can send it to sports at cleveland.com and put Terry's talking in the oh, subject line. By the line. way, of course, yeah. Jeff Kent, he goes back to the National League and he goes back to hitting. <laughs> so he'll tell you that there is a difference. <laughs> it's the Josh Bell corollary. So. Yeah. Um, all right, this one is from Brian in Minneapolis, and he says, Hey, Dave and Terry, Brian here from Minnie. What's the story with Cole Calhoun? He's doing a really nice job at a time they desperately need a few positive surprises. What have you thought of Cole Calhoun so far, Terry? You talk about finding something nice at a rummage sale. Um, this is a guy, if you look at his stats the last couple of years, not very good. He's been struggling. Then he bounces down his mid-30s into AAA where he was raking. He was sitting down there. And um, I know Francona liked him. He's got a little bit of the Jason Giambi uh, uh, or uh, basically that veteran presence that they really like. And, you know, he, he's been he's been hitting fairly well. But before I would go too far down the Calhoun Road, let's see how he finishes up the season. Um, I think they also realize after – trading those veterans and that, that they had to bring in a couple of guys and they picked up Oriano, who, by the way, that guy's a really good outfielder. He is very, very good. And that's one of those things too. You go, well, if you want to have a guy like straw, I might want to take Oriano because once in a while he, he hits the ball a little harder. Um, so they, you know, both of those guys were, were just picked up to, to bring in some, uh, some extra, um, just some, some extra age to it. But Calhoun, you can see. I mean, I can see them bringing in him in next year, um, like a. Uh, I'm not saying it's like Napoli, but that that type of personality. And you bring him in. I remember one year they they brought or two years they brought Jayambi in. I think in a minor league contract to spring training, so they kept the 40 man roster spot open for somebody else. And then if they wanted him, they took a created a roster spot for him as the season opened. I can see that happening. Um, you know, Calhoun for his the way he looks physically, he's a pretty good outfielder. He really is. Uh, Laureano's terrific. So I have to. I haven't looked at how he's done against lefties and righties versus his career. That would be interesting to see. But it's fun. Thank God somebody's hitting. Yeah. Oh, and if you ever want to, there's the old definition, a professional at bat. If you ever want to see a professional at bat, watch Cole Calhoun. Yeah. Although <laughs> he, 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 he the other day did the same thing. He and Laureano back to back. <laughs> Took those fastballs down the middle in that game. That was that extra inning game where uh, they came back and won. That was the game where Tanya said, maybe I'll swing at the first pitch and, and rip it. Because they remember Tanya's coming up and go, oh, they'll chew this kid up. And <laughs> is it, you're talking about baseball. Yeah, I know nothing. And then, of course, he, he gets that fastball and he, he ripped it to right for a base hit. And they kind of got that whole rally going. So. All right, Cole Calhoun's batting 250 with a 333 on base percentage and a 402 slugging percentage. Well, there so, you go. That's 740. Thanks for that. There it is. Yeah. Thanks for that question, Brian. Again, uh, hit us at sports at cleveland.com if you have anything you want to get onto next week's podcast. So, all right, Terry, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to get your Browns season prediction. And I want you to maybe name an X factor or two players that are maybe not headliners, but you think are going to make or break things for the Browns on offense and defense. We'll be right back. On Terry's talking. We're back on Terry's talking. David Campbell and Terry Pluto here. We're going to get into the Browns. It's the week before the season opener Sunday against the Bengals at Cleveland Browns Stadium. Uh, before we make predictions, Terry, you've been writing about 
Deshaun Watson this week predicting that there's going to be fireworks on Sunday against the Bengals. What did you think of that? Was it was it a good thing for him to get that out there in terms of setting expectations for his teammates, or do you think it was kind of like, uh, you know, less talking, more more playing well? Where, the where Browns have a history of over-promising and under-delivering, and that, to me, fit into that category. Because it's the first game, David, in fact, I do not make friendly wagers or whatever in any of these things, but I've talked to people who are fairly serious bettors, and they don't even like betting the first NFL game because you just don't know what these teams are going to do because they play so little in the preseason. Watson played 30 snaps, 30 grand total of 30 snaps. So I believe he's good enough to deliver fireworks down the line. I think it's hard to say that in the opening game. And I, and I hope he goes up and throws 35 points on the board and we have a grand old time next week talking about it. Uh, I would rather for a little bit more subdued. We're ready to go. I feel real good about the team. You know, I got a ton of pro- ton of uh, confidence and players around me, blah, 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 because he needs to buy himself time. I, I will repeat, he played 30 snaps in the preseason. And, you know, in last year, uh, it was a struggle for him. And I just, basically, you want to win the game. And I remember last remember last year, and we interested to see how he plays. Burrell went out, I forgot whether he threw three interceptions in the opener last year uh, for the Bengals. He was coming off the appendix surgery. Now he's coming off the calf injury. I don't think he's talking about fireworks. No, no, you know he's not. Yeah, <laughs> That's he's just not his style. Not his style, and that. So, and I'm sure Deshaun wants to portray the. Um, we're confident in that, but uh, uh, I that I would have uh, wait and see. I, you know, I was watching the Ohio State game against Indiana on Saturday, Terry, and it got me thinking about the Browns. Like after the game, Ryan Day said, "You know, we." Job number one was to win the game, yeah. and and we were really really conservative in the first half because we have a new quarterback. Yeah, we didn't want to put him in bad spots. We didn't want to fall in a hole. We wanted to play it safe and make sure we secured the win. And I'm wondering if the Browns are going to go at it, fireworks or not. Like, are they going to come out and throw the ball, you know, vertically right away, or is the offense going to be like, hey, you know what, we have Nick Chubb. We have David Njoku. Let's let's work the ball up the field. Mm-hmm. Let things settle in. Like I'm really interested to see how they're going to approach it. If it's going to be fireworks or like let's set a foundation here and then we can get more aggressive as the game goes along. Especially coming back against you know playing a quarterback who's been out a bit with with his injury and Joe Burrow. Well, I would certainly set up some throws that Watson can make early in the game. Get Chubb involved, as you mentioned Njoku. And then slip in, you take a shot downfield now and then. Um, how about sparklers instead of fireworks? Let's try yeah, some of those. There we go. Safe, uh, still attractive. Right? Still attractive, kind of glittering, just... <laughs> but, you know, we're not having uh, sonic booms that shake the, shake the house. So <laughs> I like that. And just that they look professional and they look organized. And I will say that's one thing I have felt pretty good about a little bit that Sean played is, um, you know, the offense looks like it's, I always say the operation. The operation looks pretty good. So 
I don't know, David. What do you think about all the fireworks and sparklers or whatever else, cherry bombs? I don't know. Oh, you, you were just mentioning this, Terry. Week one is such a weird week. Yeah, it, you, you're ironing out wrinkles and the and being on the headsets in the you know in a real game with it's there's so many unknowns. I, I just think that I, I just think they're gonna just they're gonna ride Nick Chubb early and then they're gonna work other guys in and yeah, I, I think they're gonna play it safe. It's very Stefanski. Yeah, and so. I, I think it's just common sense. You, you don't play guys in the preseason anymore. Of course, then you play Deshaun Watt, I mean, excuse me, uh, Denzel Ward, and what happens? He gets a concussion. I mean, that's what the classic thing of they want me to play him, and I play him, and the guy gets a concussion. You know, so that it, it, it's, it's one of those circle, circular things of no matter what you do, you feel like you're going to end up in the same place, and it's not going to be a good spot. Um, so I'm, I'm – I'm, that's why I think you just take it easy. You make sure that um, you don't just run the ball every single time and throw five-year passes. You pick your spots to go long, but you want those long drives, and you want to keep Burrow off the field. And we might see that. We might see that. So, so Terry, we've been uh, – kind of the big questions are, like, is Deshaun Watson going to be better? Is the defense going to be better? And we've, when it comes to special teams, we've talked about the kicker situation, but we haven't kind of talked about special teams as a whole. And I think that's kind of the other big question that's hanging out there about whether Bubba Ventrone can elevate this operation, what it's going to look like. Uh, you talked to Bubba Ventrone when you were in West Virginia – what did he have to say to you, and kind of how do you see his special teams culture playing out this season? Well, I'm writing a long story on this for later of the week. One of the things he mentioned to me, and I loved it because it was one of my uh, pet football peeves, is penalties on special teams. Penalties on special teams. And if you look at the last three years of the Browns and versus the last three years of the Colts, where Ben Trum was the coordinator the Colts had 23 penalties in the last few years on special teams and he'll tell you that's too many Browns had 41 that's a lot and then if you go into special team rankings and there's different ways of doing it but the the primary one that's most respected is Rich uh, Goslin who's from the uh see with the Dallas paper I think now he's retired but he still does those and so you look at the last three years um, where they rank special teams. The Colts were, were going from 22 backwards. So 22, Colts 8th, Browns 18th. 21, Colts 2nd, Browns 30th. 20, Brown, Colts 4th, Browns 28th. And it's not just the kicker. He, he has all kinds of formulas involved, the punting and coverage and penalties and, and that. Um, I know that the Browns really were think that some of the penalties and that just aside of a you know being sloppy and ill prepared discipline yeah yeah and don't push a guy in the back yeah don't push a guy in the back don't when you run down to cover a kick don't run out of bounds or run back in bounds how about just getting lined up right you know these things so. They think Ventrone does that. Ventrone is a disciple. They always say Belichick, but he's actually a disciple of my all-time favorite special teams coach. Uh, the immortal name and special teams thing is Brad Seeley, who was with Bill and then later was here for two years and was in the league for almost 30 years. In fact, when Brad Seeley was here in 2009, the Browns ranked number one in special teams. In 2010, they ranked number three. 
and Ventrone was on with that group, and he that is his real mentor. Um, so I'm anxious to see how this works out. Bubba is 40 years old. He should be really in his prime now as a coach. You know, he eventually wants to be a head coach. They had to do this thing where they made him associate head coach to get him in here, to get him out of his contract with the Colts. And, by the way, Eric Mangini did the same thing in 2009. Seeley was with Belichick all those years. And then when Mangini came in here to be the head coach, he had to do the same thing with Brett Seeley's contract to bring him here. And to, maybe more about Brett Seeley than anybody cares. But Seeley also had it in his contract that if Mangini fired or was left, he was immediately out of his contract to become a free agent. And that happened in 2010. Then he went up to San Francisco and uh, had a really uh, a nice career there, where, by the way, he also was Phil Dawson's special teams coach for a second time around when, after the uh, uh, Browns let Dawson go up in 2012. I do think, David, not, I, I just put uh, word this just in the story of Ventrell. What do you think? I think in some ways the special teams coach is almost at the mercy of the kicker. A little bit, but Terry, what I would like to see from the Browns special teams is there's plays where you don't win or lose. You just, there's kind of a stalemate. There's plays where you lose the game for your team and there's plays where you win the game for your team. And I felt like the Browns had a lot of plays where they were either not helping or they were losing the game for their team. And I think that's going to switch with Bubba Ventrone. I think he's going to clean a lot of this up. And kicker aside, like coverage teams and punt punt returns. You're absolutely right on all those things. They're going to flip the field on returns sometimes. There's going to be a handful of plays that they're going to make that are going to make a difference this year on special teams that are going to help them win some games. I really believe that. But what I meant about the mercy of when that kicker lines up and you're the special teams coach, you're almost oh, yeah. like you've There's just, nothing you can do. <laughs> you just put your kid on the school bus. You have yes. no idea what he's going to do. Uh, you know, the game stops, and it's really between the kicker and his mindset. Yes, you need the good snap, and yes, you need the hole. By the way, I got a couple emails from people who said that uh, Corey Cortez was not known the punter as a good holder in Green Bay and that. Well, I did some real checking with the Browns if they thought the holding was in any way a problem, uh, they said no. Um, I mean, they would actually wouldn't have minded. We have to switch holders, and that fixes Cade York. That would look better for the Browns. That's but easy. They did not see that as a problem. Uh, so uh, that is the one area where I'm at, at their mercy. You know, you kind of like you either have Phil Dawson or you don't. Now, uh, Bubba told me about how in two, remember 2021, the kicker was Chase McLaughlin. He was, I think, second worst in the NFL at 71% conversion rate. He gets cut by the Browns. They, they get, bring in York. Uh, McLaughlin bounces over to the Colts. He goes up to 83%. Now, how much of that is Ventrone? I don't know. How much of that is kicking inside? Ventrone said he actually had him earlier in his career for a few games. I think Vin Venturi or one of the other kickers was hurt. So he had a relationship with him. And he said sometimes as a special teams coach, it's almost like you just don't want, as he called it, you don't want to pollute the kicker's mind. And so that's a, all these kickers too have their specialized coaches. They all do. And they're sending video to these guys. And like, if you heard 
when Dustin Hopkins came in, he mentioned he and York kick at the same kickers academy thing. They all know each other. They're all kind of running through the same type of coaches. And that's what I meant, too, about the special teams coach. He's a little bit just at that mercy of those guys. It is like being a baseball manager. You, yeah. you put the guy out there and you hope he you hope he comes through. So Yeah, although um, you're more likely sometimes to be able to fix a reliever than you are to fix a kicker. That is true. Um okay, Terry, we got to move for some time here, but I want so we're going to talk about predictions. Nine home games for the Browns this year. What do you think their record is going to be? And I thought uh, you were going to do do this like who's <laughs> going to jump out on each unit. You, you want to do this. that first? Let's do yes, that first. Okay, let's first. do the X factors first. You don't, first, you don't put we'll do... the big thing early. <laughs> oh, that's, bad like you, that's like you got to – it reminds me of when the Browns and Stefanski's first game, speaking of special teams, they went down to Baltimore. And it's the first quarter. And they have the ball like, I don't know, fourth and five, like the Baltimore 28. And they try to run, remember, a fake with the Scottish hammer. I don't know what he was going to pass it or run it or what. And of course, it was a minus 12, and you know. <laughs> and why are you even doing this in the first ran, quarter? And uh, I just ran a Scottish Hammer play. All right, so let's do this. I wanted to ask you your X factor. And you a player have to go who's first. not a headliner. All right, I've got two of them. All so right. this is a player who's not a headliner, but okay. we think is going to make a big difference in this season. So my X factor on defense is Juan Thornhill. Okay. And I the reason is because if you watch that Browns defense last year, there were so many plays that could have been stopped for five or seven or eight yards that the, the safety play was not good enough. John Johnson was not making the plays to erase mistakes and save them some big plays. And I think Juan Thornhill is going to save the Browns when they do have a breakdown. I think he's going to make the play and he's going to save them a lot of big plays. So that's my X factor on defense. My X factor on offense is, is Elijah Moore. And I'm really interested to watch this on Sunday. The Browns are going to line him up in the backfield and wide in the slot. And the defense is going to have to pay attention to him all the time. And, and there's going to be a lot of confusion. And I think that's going to open things up for Nick Chubb and Amari Cooper and Joku and whoever they have catching passes or getting the ball on that given play. I think Elijah Moore, is he might get some, st some stats too, but I think – Beyond that, he's going to cause a lot of matchup problems for opposing defenses. So those are my two guys. Who do you want to talk about Okay, as I'm, your expected? I've, I've been saying I've been on the DPJ bus for quite a while, and I think uh, Donovan Peoples-Jones is going to have a really good year. And he's going to be not noticed, and they're going to look up about seven or eight games in the season and say, this guy's had some big touchdowns. He's had a lot of crucial catches. He may not be leading the team in receptions, but he's been an impact player. Defensively, this is probably just hoping. Uh, I'm, I'm debating between Agbo and JOK. I'm going back and forth for either one. I'm hoping on JOK, but I think it'll be Agbo. Interesting. Because I think for all the – they're talking about the, you know, uh, the Zadarius Smith. But I think you're going to see him more inside than people think. And then that'll put Agbo on the one side along with um, Garrett. And if you're blocking, you know, you remember, you have Tomlinson too. So, really, if you're doing your blocking schemes for, for opposing the Browns, man, you got a lot of guys to account for. Somebody's going to get opportunities. And if I'm trying to protect my quarterback, 
I mean, I'm going to go after Garrett. I'm going to go after uh, Smith. I'll probably go after Tomlinson. And I'll just hope Agbo last year, where he had a pretty good year, was kind of a fluke. Some good picks there, Terry. I like those. Interesting. Um, okay, now we have to make our predictions. You want to go first or second? You go first. <laughs> All right. I was going to go 11-6. and six, And people might think I'm being crazier, but I'm going to – downgrade a little bit and i'm going to predict 10 and 7 and the reason i'm predicting 10 and 7 they won seven games last year with a dysfunctional defense and very very average to below average special teams i think they've fixed both of those problems they have nine home games and i look at this schedule and i don't see a lot of teams that scare that are scary i don't see buffalo i don't see kansas city like it's they can beat pretty much all these teams on their schedule san francisco is going to be tough They've got a couple of tough road games. Like, you know, the, the division's going to be tough, but I don't see any reason. They, you know, last year they gave the Jets game away at the end. So they should have no. been, they should have had eight <laughs> wins. <laughs> so I think this team is easily two wins better with these changes they've made. I'm going to go with 10 and seven. I had to talk myself out of 11 and six. So well, what do you think? I, I had to talk myself up from nine to eight, but I, I already told somebody else today 10 and seven. So I got to stay with it. Oh, okay. And it's a minimum of ten wins on this team. The, the 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 talent's good. The overall talent is good. And I hearken back to the Browns were tenth in the NFL in scoring in the eleven games that Jacoby Brissett played. In fact, I remember having just a casual conversation with uh, Andrew Barry about that after the season. And I said, you know, I mean, your team was. You were tenth in the NFL scoring with 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 uh, Jacoby. You go four and seven. He said, you know, this wasn't you know for his whole straight. He just said you, you would think at minimum seven, you know, seven four, at least six and five with that. Of course, the division that was the blowing coverage is all over the place. And then as the weather got worse, the division, uh, the defense's numbers got better. But I think primarily the uh, the weather helped the defense too. So um, given that, and just given the fact that. Uh, even if Deshaun is just pretty good, it's a 10-win team. And because I think the defense will be uh, maybe not – I'm getting people say top five defense. That's a, that's a lot to ask. But top 10, they could be top 10. Uh, because you know when they'll be top five? The following year. Year two with Schwartz. That's when you're top five. But year one, you can be top 10 and allowing point, you know, the fewest points and that kind of stuff. All right, so we're both at 10 and 7, and uh, people can write that down, and when we're wrong, they can write in at sportsatcleveland.com yeah. and make fun of us, and we'll, I think and I we'll was, take it. So. I think I was, I was like, dumb last year. I went like 9 and 8 or something like that. I forgot, even without – I just – you know, last year I was thinking – I thought Jacoby would be okay. I really did. I didn't know he was going to be quite that good, but I thought they would be at least in the top half of scoring – and I didn't believe the defense would be as bad, especially early in the year, as it was. Well, and Terry, if they win that Jets game, which was one of the all-time epic collapses in NFL history, you would have been one game off. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel bad about yeah. that prediction at all. So uh, it takes a lot of uh, a lot of bad things for them to blow the way that, that they did last year, that game. So all right, Terry, um, 
you wrote a lovely column about Jimmy Buffett who passed away over the weekend. And I know you've got Florida connections and, and Jimmy Buffett holds a special place in your heart. And a lot of lyrics really resonated with you. Why don't you talk about Jimmy Buffett and kind of your connection with him and his well, music? Well, there's a couple of Jimmy Buffetts. I mean, one is the Margaritaville, you know, fins up party time stuff. And it's, as Jimmy would certainly say, even from the grave, it has served him well. And he turned it into a nearly a billion dollar enterprise, which, by the way, shows you how smart he is. Most of these guys, when they make money in, in show business, they trash it. He turned around, invested, he invested with another Buffett, Warren Buffett, guiding him to build this whole Margaritaville empire. Uh, but there's also this side of Jimmy Buffett who wrote this very kind of folk rock songs with strong lyrics. I mean, one of the ones that after Jimmy died that just jumped out at me is a song uh, why, uh, about coming home. And it's, the first line is, the years go longer, not shorter. Excuse me. Yeah, excuse me. The years grow shorter, not longer. The more you are and you are. And it, boy, isn't that true? When you're older, the years seem to go shorter or quicker. And that struck me because it's like all of a sudden I'm looking at Jimmy being 76. And his... Uh, um, I mean, this is a guy that uh, just had a real feel for for lyrics and words and that when he, I know a couple of people kind of were local folk singers and that, they go, if you're going to survive, you got to come up with some bar songs, some drinking songs, some bar songs. And then you could slip in kind of the songs you like more of your, you know, kind of singing from your heart. And Jimmy, Jimmy did both. And so I really wanted to write more about the, say what I call the come Monday, Jimmy Buffett, you know, or one of the lines there, I guess I was never meant for good or rock and roll. Here I am my hush puppies. I got my hush puppies on. And so, and the nice thing about Buffett, as you notice, he passed away. You just don't hear the stories of trashed hotel rooms or bar brawls or any of this stuff. I'm sure he had his drinking days down in Key West when he was young, but, and he went through a lot of, as somebody who, uh, even myself tried to find what kind of writer I was going to be. He went through different phases. You know, he grew up in Mobile, um, was in New Orleans for a while, kind of country rock kind of stuff, Gulf Coast rock. Then he went towards the Caribbean uh, thing. You know, it says like one of his lines, I got a Caribbean soul I can barely control and some Texas hidden here in my heart. And that really is a different type of music he could do. Um, and even at the end, because I was listening to what I have the, serious channel and they were playing a, a concert he did he did two days of concerts in january from key west this year his voice still sounded pretty good then you find out the guy has had skin cancer for four and a half years the kind that usually knocks you out in nine months and he went four and a half years with it his last appearance they said his friend is a guy named mac McAnally, wrote a lot of songs with him was doing a real small kind of club thing in rhode island so this is in like i want to say july so Jimmy calls him up, says, hey, you mind if I join you on stage for this? So he's like a couple hundred people at this thing. They ended up doing like a duet together. That was his last time. But I got a feeling he knew that things were coming. And then the last story I had, well, I used to, we used to go to a place called Cedar Key. Now, that's not in the Keys. In fact, that's the, basically it's a place that just got slammed by a hurricane. It's about 100 miles north of um, Tampa. And I had heard that. Jimmy liked it because it was kind of like old Florida, like Key West or Fort Wayne commercial. So I was talking to some people there and I said, I heard Jimmy Buffett liked the he come here. And there was a place called, 
this is he just sounds like going to the Neptune Lounge sounds like would go back to there in a thing called the Highland the uh Island Hotel. Just it look it looks just like, you know, Florida eighteen eighty four. And I and I've talked to a couple of people, oh yeah, he comes here, he stay here people stay here periodically and sometimes just come down and sort of meet people and sing songs and you know, we're a real small town over here and and he just let them, he would go he goes, he just kinda of show up a couple of times and I'm like that's I think part of what his appeal is. You just felt like this is a guy you could hang around with and listen to him tell stories. Yeah, and the thing, you know, I heard Stephen King on a radio interview one time, and he started out as a sports writer, yeah. interestingly enough. And he says he he has to write like every day because he has to get through, he has to get the bad stuff out to get to the good stuff. And you you wrote about this, Terry, about Jimmy Buffett, like didn't just all of a sudden wake up and he was famous no. and and, and, a, and a huge success one day. Like he he wrote folk songs and he he wrote all different types of music. And he finally, finally, after all that work and creativity, stumbled upon the thing that kind of really hit people. And I, I, it's really a testament. I'm always amazed to hear that you always see the, uh, you know, when you go behind the music, there's a bunch of hard work oh, and thought yeah. and, and heart that goes into making somebody what they are. And he went, he he, he paid his dues. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> and right? The funny thing is, you know, Margaritaville. So he said it came from, he's sitting in a, just kind of a lunch place in Austin, Texas. And he's with a friend of his. They were some margarita because they said they heard the margaritas are good here. So he said, oh, I'll try it. And he drank the margarita and he said, you know, they had to call this place Margaritaville. That's pretty good. So Austin, Texas. So he says he gets on a plane. He had to fly back to Miami. He was living in Key West at the time. There's, If you've ever driven down the Keys, A1A, it's a long road that goes down. And he said there's a thing called the Seven Mile Bridge there. And there's a huge accident on it. So now he's kind of rolling around Margaritaville, Margaritas, and he's stuck for a couple hours in traffic, can't move. So he pulls out his guitar and his kind of his notepad. He writes Margaritaville on this bridge, and he almost called it Wasting Away in Austin, Texas. He thought he was <laughs> going to call it that. It doesn't and roll I, off the tongue the same way, and, does and it? And you know what? It would not have created the whole empire. So then he said that night he was at a bar. He was playing some bar club down there in Key West. That's old Key West before all the change showed up. He goes, oh, I got this new song. Yeah, it's by Margaritas, maybe Margaritaville. He plays it. Of course, all the drunks love it. It's great. And um, it took off from there. But he, there was so much more to the guy than, than Margaritaville, that's for sure. Ah, great stuff, Terry. So, All right. Um... We have a couple things to mention here at the end before we wrap up. First of all, Terry, you are going to be at the Marvin Library in Shelby, Ohio on September 25th at 6 p.m. So I so wanted to throw that that's out the there. That's the next library appearance. You got it. And that is a Monday night, Monday, September 25th. So mark that in your calendars if you can make that out. And then also, before I forget, I want to mention you can get everything Terry does every week in a weekly newsletter. It's free. Just go to cleveland.com slash newsletters and you can sign up and you'll get everything that Terry does, sports and otherwise, faith, music. Uh, it'll all come into your inbox once a week, every Monday. Again, cleveland.com slash newsletters. Sign up. It, it literally takes a minute and it's free. So anything else, Terry? That'll do it. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Enjoy the Browns week. Enjoy the first week of the NFL. Thursday night is the first game. And uh, we'll see how the Guardians do. Have a great sports weekend, and we'll talk to you next time on Terry's Talking.